Could someone please call respiratory? Welcome to the Hey, Could Someone Please Call Respiratory podcast with your hosts, Eric Harder and Denise Van Ball. All right. So we are back today with another episode of... Thanks. No. <laughs> I screw it up every time I say it. <laughs> hey, can someone please call respiratory um, podcast, which is a podcast that we're having. You may notice a very handsome looking gentleman. Uh, it's actually Brad Pitt's brother, Larry, is on the podcast with us today. Yeah. And um, he is the, his name is Tom Lamphere. He is the executive director of the Pennsylvania Society for Respiratory Care. And in fact, many years ago, I don't even, I'm sure, well, this is a silly statement, but Tom, I emailed you from Southern California in like 1999. Yep. And I said, I'm thinking about moving to Philadelphia. Are there jobs out there? Whatever. You sent back an email and gave me all this information, whatever. And then... So, and then in later years, I contacted you about this type of business that we do. And so really through the years, I've harassed you is what I'm getting to. You're and good at that. Yeah, yeah. I'm real persistent that way. And then I even had you, I asked you to come to a sales meeting one time. And I think I introduced you as the Ryan Howard of respiratory. So that's Does that ring a bell? Like that. Yeah, except now people don't know who Ryan Howard is anymore. You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's how much time has passed. Yeah, <laughs> you are still the Ryan Howard of respiratory yeah. um, in my I eyes. Don't, don't think so. Maybe in your eyes. Yeah. <laughs> so I appreciate you being on the podcast. As always, we have um, Denise. Uh, Van Respiratory up in the left-hand corner, <laughs> and she is uh, the director of operations at our company, uh, making sure all the I's are dotted and T's are crossed. Uh, as I was telling Tom on the podcast, she's actually the best respiratory therapist I've ever worked with. That's no, that's no lie. Um, but, and it's kind of what we're going to talk about a little bit today, I think, Tom, pick your brain on, is basically... Um, increasing your value as a respiratory therapist or the future of respiratory care. And so what stuck out with Denise besides her telling me when I interviewed her that she was pregnant, <laughs> right. And that um, basically she just really needed a job and what else am I leaving anything out? I love old people. Yeah. Yeah. And so, but she was, you know, she, she wanted the job and any time, you know, I'm, you know, through these years of interviewing people and hiring people and all, I like when somebody seems like they like the job or they are interested in the job, you know? And, and I don't know, it seems like there's so many times where you interview somebody and they're just, it's like, you're bothering them, you know, like, <laughs> what are you even here for? Like, you know, like you got this. I've, I've been a manager, two different hospitals, two different times. And that's like one of the, my biggest pet peeves is somebody walks in and you can tell within 30 seconds that they really don't care. No. They don't come dressed up. Now, I don't think you need to wear a suit and tie, but no. you know, I've seen girls come in with crop tops on, you know, guys come in with flip flops on. It's wow. like you're going to an interview for a job. You think yeah. you have some idea what you're doing. And then even beyond that, cause I've had some people that you kind of look at and you would say, all right, and maybe, maybe they don't dress the best, but 
you could tell when you talk to them that they, and, and the key word I think you're missing and what you were trying to say is you want somebody with passion. Yeah. They have a passion for what they do. I mean, and I, I know, I mean, you and I have been doing this a long time. I've been doing this 30 years. I was probably, I'm probably as passionate now as I was then, maybe even more so, just different. Yeah. And you're the same way. You started out in the hospital and, you know, you, you your passion took you out of the hospital into other areas, but it's still, a, we don't do this because we're going to become millionaires. Denise, are you a millionaire? Yes. Okay. Thanks. Well, I have a boat. I, I'm not a millionaire, but I do own a boat. Yeah, okay, she has well, a there boat. There you go. All right. You got, so, Philly. We do this. We make decent money, right? But it, it's not like we're doing this to retire early. So if you, if you don't like this, why are you doing it? Yeah. You know, and there's a lot of therapists out there and a lot of nurses, a lot of doctors that I sit there and I go, mm, why are you doing this? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. that's a good point. I, um, I think also just lie to me, like act like you're really interested <laughs> in the job and you know, like, Oh, this is amazing, whatever. And then, and then you can always follow up and say, well, make it, you make it. I don't care if you hate your job when you're in the hospital or you're doing whatever you're doing, smile, yeah. make everybody think you love it inside. You might hate it, but that's okay. Yeah. So that kind of leads me into, I, I, anytime I get around you, I, I, and again, my harassing you through the years, cause that's my, that's my gift is, um, is, is what is the future in your eyes of respiratory care? Like, uh, how do you feel about where we're going as an so industry? I, I think it's, it's my, my opinion has changed slightly over the years, but it's always been the base the same thing. And that is, you know, our field started and our profession started, you know, from a need of equipment people, you know, people that understand the equipment. And this is back in the days where the equipment was kind of, you know, we laugh at it now, you know, the, the, the MA1s of the world and that kind of thing. And the, and the equipment was sophisticated for the times, but that's changed, you know, dramatically. Look in the last 10 years of what's changed dramatically. So it's still equipment based, but to me, you can teach, especially at this point, you know, you, if you have a teenage kid, they can probably run the ventilator better than you can because they're, they're so, they've grown up with iPads and, you know, iPhones and all that. So they're all, they, they've grown up equipment. Right. Um, so I think our profession is changed dramatically that way. But, and, and that's, I think, affecting where we're going in the future. A lot of what we've done in, in you know, back in the 60s and the 70s was pushing oxygen tanks around. You know, putting in IPPB machines and things like that, that's all gone, yeah. you know, for the most part now. The, the equipment's gotten smart. We have ventilators now that you can basically just turn on and, you know, there's a couple of modes that you just have one button to push. Yeah. You, you need someone that really knows the physiology. I would say yes, but beyond the ICU, that's where I think things are starting to fall apart, where you don't need somebody to give breathing treatments. And you and I have talked about this in the past. Does every breathing treatment have to be given by a respiratory therapist or even a nurse necessarily? No. You know, I, I think, you know, I think one time you told me you could have a monkey come in and do, do your MDIs for you. And I, I said, yeah, I kind of agree with you. Uh, a smart monkey would be nice because they could at least show yeah. it correctly. But <laughs> I think our profession is heading towards a time where we're, there's going to be a, a big reduction in the number of therapists. But what's going to be left are going to be really good people. They're yeah. going to be the, the the best of the best, the cream of the crop. And you know, I've been teaching for 15, 20 years now. And I tell students that every year. I'm like, look, you don't want to be the person that's, you know, all they care about is how much do I make and how little can I do? But, you know, how can I help my patient? 
we, we teach them all this information. And I always tell them one thing, if there was one thing that worked for every single person, we'd all do it, right? right. If there was one mode of ventilation, if oxygen worked for everybody, or if there was one medication, everybody would be on that, but it's not that way. So we get this toolbox. And I think what our profession should be, what every therapist should be, is the person that knows what tools are used in that toolbox for what patients. It's not one size fits everyone. Right now, the way it's set up in healthcare is, you know, one size fits everybody. And that we know that's not correct. And that's why we have, you know, unnecessary treatments and we have, you know, therapies that are useless on some people, but should be on other people that aren't getting it. And I think that's where we can grow as a profession rather than doing the same old thing we've been doing. I think it's interesting. Like, um, I agree completely with what you're talking about. And I, so, I mean, I've always been interested in like growing things and, and, um, and business, of course. And so I don't know that I would have been um, involved in respiratory this long if I didn't have the opportunity to kind of start and grow my own thing. Right. So that's kind of what I'm, and it's, it's awesome. I, and I tell everybody that we work with on, even on your worst day, you're, you're helping people breathe, you know, so even on a bad day, you're helping people. And that's pretty great thing. And should be proud of that. So, however, working in the first two, I really love, Oh man, this is awesome. We wear a lab, you know, I would start out in Southern California wear a lab coat, you know, scrubs and you go, you know, all these amazing things that are happening and whatever. And then after a while, I started to see kind of, you know, the, I was in my early twenties and, and I started to see the people that were 20 and 30 and 40 years, my senior, and just looking like they dragged in the dog, you know, when they came to work and they were just like, Oh yeah, this is terrible. And, and I'd be like, what are you guys talking? You know, I was confused. And so, but, uh, you know, some of these hospitals, they just hand you a, a list of NEB treatments and a beeper for the ER. And so doing that over and over and over again, I really saw, uh, kind of the future in my eyes of like, how can this sustain itself? You know, God forbid, and I don't want to irritate anybody, but I'm pretty good at it. So might as well, is that if I'm the CEO of the hospital and and predominantly respiratory therapists are giving nebulizer treatments, I'm having LPNs do that. I'm, you know, I'm, I really am. And I'm putting, there's no department anymore where you sit in the department. I'm putting you in the unit and in the ER and maybe, you know, what's it pack you and some of these places where you're weaning people off the vent, you're, you're, uh, you know, you're right there with the nurse practitioner or the doc, whatever it is, make, helping to retake the ET tube and guide and direct and, and, and try new things and draw the blood gas and make the changes and, and all that stuff where you're part of the group. And even, in later years, I, I was, I was a traveler and I traveled, you know, different locations. And I took a travel assignment in the early two thousands at a pediatric hospital and, and in the ER, they were trying some new thing. Right. And so they didn't even really know what, what, what they wanted a respiratory therapist to do, but they, they were in such dire need for nurses that they're like, let's just have somebody come in, you know, whoever. So it's funny. I, when I was a manager one of the times, and again, multiple places, but at, at one of the locations I worked at, in fact, both, and, and a pl another place where I actually worked, I wasn't a manager or a supervisor, but I was just working there. 
one of the, the programs that I wanted to start and actually did start in one place was we would have a therapist get called to the emergency room. And instead of, you know, come down and do this treatment, it was come down and evaluate this patient. So the, the protocol, and God forbid you say protocol in our, in our industry, but the, the protocol at that time was if a patient came in with hypoxemia or any kind of signs of respiratory distress, they just page respiratory. Mm. And then we went down and what we do? We evaluated, we did spirometry. Spirometry in the ER, people thought I was like, you know, you, you think I was the devil incarnate because I said we should do spirometry in ER. Not peak flow, which is a complete waste of time, but, and, you know, I have people that think I'm crazy because of that. Well, I've worked with Bruce Tobin, who, who was one of the, the top people in respiratory for years and years. And Bruce was the smartest guy I think I've ever met. And, and he said, what's peak flow? And it was at uh, uh, Germantown Hospital. Hmm. And he said, we don't even carry them here. And I said, what do you mean? And I'm just, just out of school. I'm like, what do you mean? You know, you, we don't have peak flow. We just learned about it. He said, they're useless in the hospital. They're great for at home where a patient can, can get a baseline level. So, but it's useless in the ER. You go in and the doctor says, do a peak flow. Patient does a peak flow. And you come back and say, doctor, the patient's number was 250. And the doctor says, hmm, what's that mean? <laughs> and he says, well, well, that's pretty good. I'm like, well, what if I told you his normal was 500? Oh, well, then that's not very good. Well, what if his normal is 250? Oh, then it's excellent. So it's a useless number, right? right. So we would do spirometry and we would go in we would make you know, recommendations, and then we could actually do the first treatment if they needed the treatment. That protocol lasted about six months, mm. and then it went away. And you don't want to know why it went away? Mm. Because the therapists that I was working with, the majority of them hated doing it. Mm. They hated getting called to the ER to evaluate a patient. There were there were a group, and Denise, you know the group I'm talking about, who <laughs> loved it. it. It was awesome. It was like, wait, I can go down and use my brain and use my knowledge and use the equipment that's appropriate and make recommendations to a doc. So those people, when they were down there, the docs loved it because if I went down and I did an evaluation, I go to the doc and say, this is what they need. They would do it. But then other therapists would go down and they would do as little as possible. And they would, uh, what's a good word for saying piss and moan? You know, they would piss and moan about it the whole time, yeah, you know? Right. And yeah. ultimately it derailed the entire process. Yeah. Yeah. And, so and that's, yeah, that, that's, that's what I think has to change. We're moving. Medicine is moving more towards that protocolized. You know, they don't need us to do all the call it scut work, if you will. Right. And I think the problem is back when you and I went to school and we got out and even before us, what was a therapist? It, it was very much a, a, a do do tasks. It was yeah. task oriented for everything. And now that's that's completely changing. And, if you know, the, the new kids coming out of school are smart. They know their stuff, but we're moving them away from task-oriented and using, you know, talk with the docs, talk with the nurses, become part of the team. And I think for the, the people that have been around a little bit longer, that idea of team, they don't like that idea. Right. Yeah. I In that ER, I remember being down there and they're like, kind of like, well, you know, I guess go listen to everybody's lungs. And I was just like scratching my head. I'm like, I'm going to be down here for 12 hours. Like <laughs> I got to do something else, you know, like. And, and, and I, you know, one of my things is be the change you want to see in the world. Right. So I was like, and I'm, trust me, no God's gift to respiratory care. That's for sure. But I also wanted my time to be effective. And I also wanted to like, not look at the clock for 12 hours and wait and do a breathing treatment every two hours. So I was like, taking people to CAT scan and, you know, holding for sutures and, uh, IVs in. I did that for a while. I didn't do no, I, they didn't let me do that. But yeah, that's, that's something that, 
right? That they should let them do. And, and if you create that value, right? And so that's really the main thing. Create value there. And if we're not creating value and becoming linchpins in, in the facility for these organizations, then really, what are you doing? You know, we could pay anybody to do that stuff. And I, and I kind of, through the years kind of tried to, and I felt like I saw that writing on the wall and just was like, and then, you know, we were, we're serving fast forward years later where we started servicing nursing facilities and hospice organizations. And, uh, and certainly within the nursing facilities, like predominantly a lot of the medical equipment companies are just having drivers drop off devices and the nurses have no idea high flow. Now you've got high end equipment and it's becoming more and more higher end equipment. It's it's like buying a, you know, a Porsche to drive around to the Wawa around the corner and that's all you ever drive it. Right. Because you don't know what it can do and you don't, you know, why would you spend all that kind of money on it? Yet home care companies, they've upped their, their ante in terms of equipment but the, the nursing homes and, and those types of facilities, subacutes and so forth, they're not utilizing it correctly. They never right. do because they don't have the right people there to that even know how that equipment works. Right. And even know if is that, you know, that, that trilogy unit, is that really what's appropriate for that patient? Maybe it's right. the guy two doors down who really needs it. And sure. he's sitting there with a 30 year old CPAP machine. Yeah. And so we've always tried to, you know, be ahead of that curve and, and, and create that value. And especially now, right, Denise, like the, with PDPM and the nursing homes, how's that working? They have to take a higher acuity patient to make money now. Um, they need that trach patient. They need those acute cardiopulmonary patients. Um, and they need a respiratory therapist in the facility to help guide their care. Because if they don't have that, then that patient's just going to end up going right back to the hospital. Um, and we do or the therapists in the building, they don't, or they aren't running and giving breathing treatments. They are making sure that if the patient is on a trilogy, that it is appropriate for them. And they are making sure that if the guy down the hall isn't on anything, or he's on this 30 year old CPAP, that maybe something else might work for him. And they're making those recommendations and they're building relationships with those doctors and nurse practitioners and really unloading their value into those facilities, being a therapist, doing what they went to school for. It, it's amazing how that that goes away. People people forget what they actually go to school for and they, they settle for just doing things. It, one of my favorite things that I ever remember is walking into an ICU one time and having a nurse look at me and say, oh, thank God you're here. And it was it was one of the most rewarding things and one of the most telling things all at the same time. Because I thought, well, that's great. They're really happy I'm here today. And it was a busy as hell day. We had like 10 ventilators and it was they were all bad, you know. And it's like, okay, well, they're happy to see me. But it was also an indictment because they're like, uh, if, if you're not here, you know, and so-and-so's here, I know it's going to be a crappy day. Mm-hmm. And that that's that's a lot of what's out there. So it's I think it's important that, you know, the therapists that are out there, and, and I know, Eric, these are the people for years you've been telling me, I want somebody that likes what they do. I like somebody that actually knows what they're doing. Yes, that's number one. But number two, and, and maybe even 1A, is that they they enjoy this and that they they want to use their brains. They don't want to just go in and do what you were saying, walk into the ER and say, what am I going to do now? Oh, I just go do a treatment. And then I go sit on my butt for two hours and wait for the yeah. next treatment to come in. And that's nope. that's uh, uh, an indictment. And I don't think that's just respiratory. I think that's every profession. Yeah. And, you know, it Agreed. It's no different. but. That's what we need. We need the people that are really good, that really enjoy what they're doing and utilize all the tools and knowledge 
you know, people like to forget learning as soon as they get out of school. They don't want to learn again. Right. How many people, you know, love going to continuing education courses? Oh, my God. <laughs> it's, it's like pulling teeth, right? Right. Yet, if they actually utilize it and went to good courses, they could learn more. There's so many therapists I know that don't even know what ventilator graphics are or even in your, your area, you know, what the different BiPAP machines are and how they work. And, and you know, ask somebody what a rise time is. I just watched a whole, I just did the CEUs and I just watched, I bought a bundle that was specific to all the things that we do in the nursing home. And I did watch all of them, like, you know, all the new machines out for sleep disorders and tracheostomies and all that. And it's, it's really a lot of good information. And you sit there going, wow, I didn't know that. And I'm supposed to be the expert. So that's when you <laughs> realize that. Think about that. If we don't know it, nurses don't know it. You know, right. docs don't know it. God, docs don't know it at all. I've seen docs order the same settings for 10 patients all on the same trilogy unit. Really? Every patient's exactly the same? Okay. <laughs> sure. <laughs> we all so, have Tom. Stories. Thinking about like um, your experience predominantly in hospitals and being a manager, you know, and 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 having those frequent, frequent what they call them, frequent flyers in and out of the hospital, going to the nursing home, coming back, going to the nursing home, coming back, coming to the nursing home, coming back. From the hospital's perspective, like how irritating is that? And that's <laughs> part A. And then part B, do you then in your local hospital know? the nursing homes that differentiate themselves from the other ones? So it, it's changed over the years a little bit. It used to be, hey, send them to us, we would make money. And, you know, right. it was the same thing. The more treatments you gave, the more money the hospital made. We, we were the kings, respiratory were the kings of, of uh, income, right? We, we, weren't, we were viewed as a profit-making, and we were the number one profit-making department in the hospital. And then that all changed in the, in the eighties and nineties, you know, and, and we suddenly became, you know, when DRGs came into play, we became the biggest expense in the hospitals. And so then the, I kind of look at it the same way for admissions, you know, patients would come into the hospital and it'd be, yeah, that's great. Now it's the last thing you want is the patient to come in. You do need them to come in obviously, but you need them to come in and get them out. Right. And so it's funny. I teach our students now the first thing, day number one, they've never met me before they come in, to school and before whatever class they have with me for the first time, the first thing I tell them is, here's what you need to know about respiratory therapy. What's your job? How, how do we, what do we do? And do, do we make money for hospitals? And they're all like, I don't know, because they're all students, they know nothing. And I'm like, here's the thing. You can do a million treatments and not save the hospital any money. In fact, you're costing the hospital money. Your key is to get your patients better faster. And and they look at me like, well, why is that? I'm like, because hospitals only make money when you can get the patient better and get them out because they get a finite amount of money. And if they're mm-hmm. discharged, you know, and the patient's still sick and come back, they're not going to get reimbursed for that the way the rules are now. So yeah. it's become a huge deal. And I can't tell you how many people don't even realize that. And to me, nursing homes, you know, they, they are in the same boat and you know this better than I do. But they don't want their patients leaving and, and you know, they, they lose money. And that may not be as much money as, as it once was, but it's still money. So yeah. I think both hospitals and nursing homes and subacutes and so forth, they're in the same boat. They, they don't want the patient in the hospital. If they have to go, sure, that's, that's one thing. But the better job we can do taking care of them there and even home care is the same, same category. Yeah. You know, everything in this country is moving towards out of the hospital care. 
Yeah. So to me, a nursing home, you know, and how, how many years did you and I talk that there were no respiratory therapists in a lot of these nursing homes? Right. And the ones that did have them didn't utilize them correctly. They just had them doing treatments, but they weren't evaluating anything or you know, making sure the patients were getting the appropriate care. Yeah. So is there a difference? Uh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. You know, there, there are nursing homes that get it and, and have the right staff and are utilizing the right equipment. And there are those that are just collecting a paycheck. Right. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, in the nursing homes, like a, the COPD patient, they give them 14 days and they want them rehabbed and cared for within 14 days. And so that patient specifically, and as they had the previous PDPM is that patient driven payment model that they've just enacted. And thankfully, right before the virus, because actually it, it, it's helped the nursing homes. Um, but before it was the rugs. Uh, and rugs was basically the the reimbursement was driven by physical therapy, and so that's changed. And of course, uh, the homes needing to take a higher acuity patient to to be able to to get that that higher uh, reimbursement necessitates having people that can care for that patient. So, um, that, I think the, the level of care is the, is the question mark there because. Yeah, you can bring a ventilator patient into your nursing home because it pays you a lot more money, but most nurses can't care for it. Legally, they can, but they have sure. no idea. They, they get such a small amount of training in mechanical ventilation. Yeah. It, it's, it's almost a joke. And, and if people actually knew that, they, they'd be scared to not have a therapist there. Right. Especially when there's no doctors. Like in a hospital, you've got a doctor <laughs> around all the time. Yeah. Not, you don't have that. You know, you're lucky if you get a doctor there once a week. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're basically relying on nurses and nurses aides. Nurses aides have no training in mechanical ventilation, and then the nurses. It all depends. There are some nurses that are really good, yeah. but not all of them. So now you've got right. this great reimbursement coming in, but your patients at a higher risk for developing all kinds of things, from ventilator-associated pneumonias to, you know, good yeah. illness, airway problems, pneumonia. Yeah, certainly having. Uh, now, a good amount of the nursing facilities have nurse practitioners there kind of all the time, which is a big, big, big help. Um, and then, um, you know, even going back to that COPD patient that's huffing and puffing and says, I can't go to PT today. Well, that now, if they do that three times over 14 days, now they're out of there on day 18 instead of day 14. Yep. And so there's a device. In fact, we had the rep on our last podcast, this NIOV, the non-invasive open ventilation, that little handheld vent basically <laughs> hooked up to an e-cylinder that gives a volume and a rate as they're doing their ADLs and they're walking up the you know, steps and whatnot and getting their respiratory muscles tuned up and their other muscles tuned up. And so the crazy part about that is so many nursing facilities don't even know what high flow is. Nope. less what what NIOV is. And so when you introduce those devices, it's just like, you know, me, like I, I'm the worst handyman ever. I hate it. I hate a, I hate a leak. I hate a plumb situation or electric or whatever. But if I learned that stuff and then I had these tools to do the, those activities, well, truth is I still wouldn't do it because I hate doing that stuff. So I don't know where I'm going with that. Denise, where am I going with that, hon? I never know where you're going, so yeah, you know, struggle. One of the biggest things that I've kind of worked for uh, five, ten years now is, 
you know, the, the, it's the most overused therapy in hospitals. You know what that is? Incentive That's it. Nailed it. And you've seen it everywhere, right? Yep. You know what the research says about incentive spirometry? And not just a little bit of research, all the research. It Jeez, doesn't I, work. Mm-hmm. Our, I mean, we have a, a clinical practice guideline, which is, that's what you want for anything, right? In any healthcare, you want a clinical practice guideline. If you look at the clinical practice guideline, you know what the first thing it says? It doesn't work. <laughs> and yet, then we have this whole practice guideline about how you should use it. But it, it says the research, and we were all trained the same way. It doesn't matter what age you were trained at. You know, we think any kind of uh, heart or abdominal surgery, right? That's when we really need it. The research is the strongest that it doesn't work. Go mm. in any home, any nursing home, any subacute, any hospital, and you're going to see millions of them. And we keep using it. And and ner- I see nurses all the time. Make sure you use your incentive spirometry. And I sit there and I go, why? And then um, the research says if you tell them to do nothing, tell them to take deep breaths on their own or give them an incentive, their outcomes are exactly the same. Mm. Yet it's given out like candy and it's insanity. So right. we, we continue to do that. Where are there other devices that we actually know do work and there's good research for and we don't push them as hard? Right. And whenever I've investigated that, it's it's really just it's ignorance is really you're talking it about like pep and flutter and sure. acapella sure. and all or, that stuff. but even even things like the, the niox and, and other other devices that are out there that you know again using a basic cpap machine you're using something that's more advanced you know the the uh what is it phillips the v60 it's a heck of a nice you know bipap machine now it's an icu bipap machine but mm-hmm. they're they have home versions of it that are almost as good yeah. you know and you need to know does every patient need that no some can use the, the basic vent. Not every patient needs an ICU vent at home. They could get away with literally a, a machine that just pushes air in and out because they're paralyzed or something and right. they don't need all the advanced. But that's where the knowing what the technology is and knowing what the evidence shows for its benefits, I think that's where we really come into play. Yeah, no, that's that's really important. I think, uh, you know, just talking about the future of respiratory care and respiratory therapists, I mean, how many years have you, taught the program over there at, what is it, Gwinnett? Yeah, like Gwinnett. I've been there uh, 15 years, six, 16 years? Yeah. Seven, maybe 17 years now. I don't know. I forget. I'm getting old. <laughs> these, yeah. these numbers all run together. So um, hearing, so we're, you know, we do have a lot of respiratory therapists that tune in and we have DONs <laughs> and administrators and whatnot to listen to our podcast. Basically, we're right up there in the top uh, 1% of all podcasts like Joe Rogan, Oprah, uh, us, we're right. We're number three. Yeah. We're right there. So anyway, but point is like, um, uh, just being able, I, I can't think of anybody that I know, which that's not that big of a statement. It's like three friends. <laughs> that if you're listening from the horse's mouth, that respiratory care is going to change significantly in the next few years and certainly after the virus when everybody kind of hopefully this thing goes away um people are going to have to cut costs certainly in hospitals and i agree and, with you there's, there's, so, there's a big reckoning that's coming yeah and, and differentiating was, yourself is really important and adding your value and looking for opportunities to add your value and take care of the patient and then also have a similar goal right like the respiratory department in a hospital should have a sign up that says get patients out well and quick 
you know, yeah. like, and, it, and it's not just faster, but better and faster that you can't just shove them out the door. I mean, sure. they, because they're going to come back in again. Right. So we, we need to use all of our tools. And there, there are some hospitals out there across the country that I've heard of that, that are really, and even, you know, nursing homes and stuff acute, they're really taking a different approach. You know, they realize if a patient leaves the hospital, they may not be able to afford the meds they need. Right. And so they're actually giving them a 30 day supply of medications. Yeah. We have that. We have nursing homes that are doing that too. Yeah. Right. And, and you sit there and, and on the surface, you say, well, that's crazy. It's, it's not so crazy when you start looking at it, you know? Um, but you have to be smart enough to look ahead. There are yeah. too many places. And, and again, we'll take it back to the respiratory world. How many places have the two of you worked where there was, you know, one nebulizer, one brand, and it was the, the 50 cent nebulizer. I call it whatever you will, but we all know what it looks like. It's blue. It's got the little, you know, and that's it. Right. And then we have the the uh, the aerogens of the world and we have the aero eclipses of the world, which are high end nebulizers that are way more effective. Mm. And so I always have students say, well, you know, why does everybody use this cheap 50 cent nebulizer when we know it doesn't even give more than half the medication just gets blown out into the air or gets stuck Mm. in the machine or whatever. And I say, well, because half the treatments that we give are useless. So that's what I tell them as I say, look, when you, when you go down and you evaluate a patient in the ER, if you happen to be at a hospital that has high-end equipment and low-end equipment, if you walk in, you know the patient has CHF. We all know that that doesn't get treated without butyrol, yet it gets an order for it. Use the 50-cent nebulizer. But if you have somebody coming to with asthma, use the $5 aerogen you know, device or the Aeroclips device that's going to get more of the medication to the patient because then maybe they don't stay and they right. go home. And you just yeah. saved the hospital a lot of money because they just yeah. left two days ago. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, we're, what is that saying? That old saying, uh, penny rich dollar for foolish. I think yep. that's what it is. That's, sure. I think administrators are that way all the time. They're, they're yeah. looking so short sighted. They're not looking at the big picture. Right. Yeah. And I think that's true in hospitals, subacute nursing homes, mm-hmm. get down the, the list. The ones that are really looking at it and saying, what's the smart way to do it? Not what's mm-hmm. the quick fix. They're the ones that are going to survive especially given what you, what you said is the pandemic has really magnified everything. I think um, there's a, certainly I can speak for the nursing home world in, in our experience, the, the nursing homes that are out there being proactive about, about trying to stop readmissions and wanting to take a higher acuity patient. Uh, many of them are doing it in the right way and, and realizing that they have to get skilled care in there. And even if you, let's say you don't have a respiratory therapist in your building, which obviously we recommend, but you should have a nurse or a respiratory nurse or somebody and a group of people that understand these high-tech devices and know how to utilize them. Um, Again, in a best case scenario, having an RT um, or at least having a respiratory therapist available 24 hours a day is really important. Absolutely. and so, yeah, so I, I, I think, think yeah, of, all, of all the, the bad COVID things that have happened, one of the biggest things that I think is a good thing is that it's really raised and people know what a respiratory therapist is, or at least they think they know what a respiratory therapist is, but the, the piece that they're only seeing right now, and it's a good thing because we're getting exposure. It took a pandemic for us, for people to know what a respiratory therapist is, right? Yeah. But they're, but they're only seeing the, the ventilator side of it. They're not seeing all the other stuff that we do before and after. We just had a, a, a webinar last Saturday and I had a therapist from one of the local hospitals speaking and she is a COPD um, educator at her, at her facility. And she was fantastic. And the passion that came from her, but the stuff that she was talking about is, you know, going to the bedside and figuring out how am I going to get this COPD patient to listen to me? 
Because a lot of them are like, ah, I've had this for 50 years. I know what I'm doing. And she said, okay. And, you know, she gets them to do a treatment. And then she, she realizes they have no idea how to do their inhaler. And she starts saying, well, did you know if you do it this way, and if she can get that one piece in, then she can get in the door and they start to rise. Maybe I don't know what I'm talking, you know, what I'm talking yeah, about. Right. And then she can really open up that floodgate of all the different things about, you know, whether it's pulmonary rehab or the physical stuff or eating correctly, all these other things. But that's an art. Yeah. You know? yeah. Patient education is huge and getting those people to listen is huge. And that's that's a big part of it, a big part of it. And, and if, you know, any facility, nursing home or, or hospital, if they think that nurses are doing that, they don't have time to do that. They, they luck, they're lucky they have time to, you know, get to the bathroom once during the shift because right. they're, they're running and they have so many patients and so much to do that's a, more of the acute care. They're not worrying about getting a patient. And I can tell you that as a patient myself. I mean, I've, you know, I've been in the hospital twice in the last three years. And, and fortunately for me, I didn't need a lot of nursing care, but one of my discharges I'll never forget because mm-hmm. the nurse was came in and, and she could care less. She had a bad yeah. day. You could just see it and yeah. gave me instructions that completely were in, inappropriate. Mm. And it actually ended up costing me, you know, two weeks of time after I got home, getting to the appropriate thing. Basically I was told to see a neurologist. All right. What I needed to see was a neuro, uh, a neurosurgeon. Mm. That's a little different. A neurologist yeah. and neurosurgeon are, two different things. Yeah. But that was, that's what I was told. And I'm sitting there and thinking, well, here's somebody who's pretty educated and had a lot of experience in medicine. Imagine what the people who don't know any of this stuff, what they're going through. And they they would have no idea. Sure. So. Well, Denise, do you uh, have any comments um, here on the podcast that you would like to share? About what, what we're talking about or about you? Just in general, just, I mean, if you. Well, I like the ones about him. They're more fun. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. I dare you. Dare? Oh, you do? Yeah. What are you going to get me for Christmas? Are you going to get me that tiki boat with the. I just gave you a shot glass. Oh, he did. He did bring me a shot. He lets me drink Tito's at the office. Yeah. She can, I just try to stay out of her way and stay in my office. I think that would be wise. Yeah. Yeah. And I try to stay (laughs) drunk. So. No, that's great. Well, yeah. no, that's fine. Well, Mr. Tom is behind every good therapist. Great. So, Mr. Tom, if people want to uh, find out more about you uh, or, or learn more about what you're doing at the Pennsylvania Society for Respiratory Care, how would they be able to get in touch with you? LinkedIn or email? Or? I'm, I'm on LinkedIn, but although I'm not on there much because I'm so busy and, and it's you get so many things in LinkedIn. Email is probably the best. Okay. Um, and you can go to our website. It's psrc.net. And that, that would be not just for respiratory therapists, but, you know, it, it gives you kind of an idea if you're an administrator or you're somebody interested in what is respiratory. I had somebody contact me the other day um, who heard something and had a question about the COVID crisis and heard it and actually went to our website and sent me an email from our, you know, about us link. Yeah. And it was a great question. And, and she was just trying to find someone that would give her a straight answer. No. Um, but our website's uh, psrc.net. And then my contact information's on there, but it's executive director at psrc.net. Awesome. Are you promoting us on the PSRC, Tom? I don't know. Am I, Eric? I don't know. <laughs> you should be. <laughs> Yeah, we're always we're always looking to hire, and I know you've referred us people before, so I appreciate that. Yeah, you've got you've got some. We're always looking for good people. Board. That's the thing, you know. We've had plenty of knuckleheads, but um, actually, we haven't had that many knuckleheads. 
There's been a couple. This is true. There's been a couple. <laughs> the, the difficult thing, it's funny. It's it's no different for any other hospital or any other places. You, you, you interview somebody and you think you know them and then you really find out what they're like. And then it's an art form in itself, interviewing and trying to get the real answers from somebody. And I've watched people over the years do it. And some people are really good at identifying it. And some people stink at it. Yeah. Um, you got Denise, so you must have been drunk that day. But besides yeah. that, you know, normally, normally you're, you're, you're not too clear headed, but that day you, you, you obviously picked a good one. It was a win. Yep. Yeah. So as far as what we're trying to do, you know, like uh, having this conversation is we're, we're trying to identify an issue here that their respiratory care is changing. And like, to be honest and say, everybody has to adapt or they're going to get left behind, you know? And I've been saying that for years. And it, I think what's going to happen is um, what we talked about earlier. You're going to be, you're going to have two different types of therapists. You're going to have the hospital care is going to move almost completely to intensive care. And how many ICUs do you have in a hospital, right? And then you might have one or two therapists that are going to run around the hospital putting out little fires, but you're not going to have all the floor care. And they're, I mean, right now, Thomas Jefferson University Hospital, they haven't had floor care in, I can't remember how long, wow. you know, and now they're a big place and you think, well, they can get away with it. But that's the model I think more places are going to follow. Sure. And for better or worse, and you can make an argument that you should have a therapist on every floor, but it's not just doing treatments. It's it's doing effective treatments and, and evaluation. And yep. if therapists don't get that idea, then you're right. They're going to get left behind because it's going to yep. be ICU care and it's going to be home care slash subacute slash, you know, outside the hospital care. And yep. that's a whole different skill set. I mean, mm-hmm. you, you know that better than anyone. Yeah. I mean, you worked in, in hospital and out now and you see the difference and it's... Yeah. If, if you can't talk to patients, you don't like talking with patients, you went to the wrong field. <laughs> there's, <laughs> yeah, there's a job for you. It involves uh, Mr. Bezos and lots of boxes and there's a warehouse. So you're welcome to <laughs> go over there. So Yeah, and remember, I, I, and you guys know this again, that the where healthcare is being delivered is growing. It's not growing in hospitals. It's growing everywhere else. Yeah. So if you're a therapist, you should be thinking about that, especially if you're a young therapist. Yeah. You should be thinking about what, what am I going to do? Yeah, I love ICU care too. Hey, I still do it, you know, and I love it. It's it's really my thing, but I did pulmonary function testing for years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that too. And that's literally sitting with a patient for 45 minutes talking to them. And, yeah. and home care is the same thing. You There's a, a special you know, technique, you, you really have to know what you're doing and be comfortable with yourself and be comfortable talking with people. They're all skill sets that people have to work on. Well, I would like to say, I think um, everybody go. did a great job on the podcast today, but I got to tell you, Tom, I think I probably did the best job. As no, I, I really evaluate. I probably did the best. Or, or, right no, now, that's, she well, said that's, that's a subjective statement. <laughs> that's a subjective statement, Mr. Pitt. You know, so, um, but I do appreciate you coming on and I'm glad to hear that you're feeling better. And yeah. I guarantee you one thing that I will continue to harass you, um, for things like this. And then at some point, once the world stops having viruses, then we can go have a drink or something. Yeah, notice I mean, how he said that, Denise. After we have viruses, not the virus, but yeah. viruses oh. in general. So I'm All them are wiped out. All the virus. So, so basically, he never wants to have a drink with you. Exactly. That's not nice. And that's not true. So, I'll drink with you. There you go. 
Well, I appreciate you coming on the Hey, Can Someone Please Call Respiratory Podcast. What do you think of that name? Not Nailed bad, it. Huh? I'm really proud of you. Unique, yes. I mean, it's kind of our thing. Hey, can somebody call respiratory? And it's usually not a please. But actually, when you see it in the theme music, it's my Aunt Carol. She's 80 years old. And I needed somebody... A, tad bit older that sounded like a nurse and she absolutely nailed it so when you hear somebody hey can please somebody please call respiratory hon that's my aunt carol and she did a great job i think she did the best job on the podcast today so uh appreciate you tom thank you so much for coming on the podcast and we will now have joel cue the music swipe up you don't swipe up because there's no swipe up function but i really like to say swipe up and it looks really professional so swipe up if you want to get this podcast in your face and fantastic so everybody did a great job and way to go everybody